Hi, everyone. Eric here. Before we get to our discussion today with Hervé Lado and David Mihai from the Natural Resource Governance Institute, I want to quickly tell you about our new China-Africa newsletter that Cobus and I are putting together every weekday. It's like getting your own daily intelligence brief on everything going on in the China-Africa space. Diplomats, journalists, activists, academics, they're all reading it now, and we'd be thrilled for you to join our growing community of readers as well. There's really nothing else like it out there, and it comes with your subscription to the China Africa Project. You can try it free for two weeks just to see if you like it. All you have to do is head over to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. Once again, that's ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, before we get started with our show today talking about resource-backed loans, it's going to be an excellent show, so I'm really excited about it. I do want to issue a very slight correction on a recent episode that we did talking about Iswatini. Uh, in our discussion about Iswatini, I mentioned that Donald Trump, the U.S. president, had made a phone call to Taiwan President Tsai Ing-wen in December of 2016, when in fact, actually, the call was initiated by the Taiwan president to the White House, and the president in the United States took the call. So a small distinction, but a very important correction, and I want to thank our listeners for keeping us honest and correcting those little details. So anytime you hear us kind of go astray, please don't hesitate to let us know. Okay, today we're going to be talking about loans and debt and resources. And of course, this is a topic we have been talking about for years on the podcast, but boy, it has come into sharp focus over the past week with the volatility on the markets, both due to the ongoing COVID-19 outbreak that has really sapped demand in China and in Europe, and now increasingly in the United States, and it's disrupted the global supply chain but then also the dispute that's erupted between Saudi Arabia and Russia and the collapse of the OPEC plus alliance. Uh, nowhere is this more acute of a problem than in Nigeria. And let me just kind of walk everybody through what's going on in Nigeria now, because I think it will set the, the table nicely for some of the other uh, points and topics that we're going to talk about on the show. So the price of Bonnie Light, which is Nigeria's premium oil grade, has dropped from $46.33 in the past few days to $37.22 per barrel. And here's the real problem here. The Nigerian government based its annual budget for 2020 on prices being up around $57 a barrel. Now, they're having to go back now and figure out what to do, but already the central bank has had to intervene in the market, uh, spending about $1.64 billion with an injection to maintain liquidity, and that's a, an effort to kind of keep the market flowing and to fight off inflation. But they can't keep doing this because they only have around $36 billion in Forex reserves. So consider the fact that the Nigerian Senate also just last week approved a new loan package of $22 billion for infrastructure, and $17 billion of that is coming from the China Exim Bank. Now, they didn't specify if those loans are backed with Nigerian oil, 
But one would assume that either the loans are backed by oil or they're going to use oil proceeds to pay for the loans. Okay, so it's just depending on where the oil is in the equation because that's the way that a country like Nigeria generates foreign exchange reserves. There is a similar situation playing out now in Ghana where they recently concluded a $2 billion a bauxite for infrastructure deal with Sino Hydro. We did a number of shows on that earlier in the year. If you're not familiar with that deal, please do check that out. And then, of course, there's Angola, which has more than $20 billion of oil-backed loans with the Chinese. And uh, and the, really, it's just it, it's it's just an absolutely fascinating time to be watching this, Cobus, because things are in motion. Before we go much further, Cobus, can you just maybe walk us through? What is a resource-backed loan and this idea of the Angola model, which is something we've talked about previously on the show, and the role that the Chinese have in securing these types of deals in Africa? Because I think that will set us up nicely for the rest of our discussion. Resource-backed loans are usually used uh, to finance infrastructure. So infrastructure is obviously very expensive and it frequently needs a, a large upfront payment before it starts generating any any economic development. Um, so you need to pay a lot, you said, to put in a, ra- a rail system, for example, before, the, before it starts generating any profit. Um, so how countries um, like Nigeria that don't have a lot of money lying around, what they frequently do is they they take out a loan which will then be either repaid through revenues from from um, their uh, uh, raw minerals or oil, or will be directly repaid with with uh, this, these kind of minerals or oil. Um, and China has has granted a lot of these loans um, over the last while, um, and has in in that way has um, you know generated infrastructure all over the continent. The problem is in moments of of um, mineral price. Uh, volatility like we're seeing at the moment uh, countries can be stuck having to repay a lot more than they originally bargained for you know so if if like now the oil price falls that frequently means that they're actually repaying so much oil to to service their loans that sometimes as has happened in the case of angola that they actually don't have enough to actually put into the market um so it it it's a, it's a very useful instrument for for countries that don't have a lot of money um but it's a it's a risky one now, even before the financial crisis of the past few days and the past few weeks, uh, a report came out from the Natural Resource Governance Institute, which is a New York-based NGO, uh, in, an independent NGO, by the way, uh, that I, that really that issued a new report called Resource-Backed Loans, Pitfalls, and Potential, and it focused a lot of attention on Africa and those Chinese-backed loans. Uh, let me give a quick little summary before we get to our guests. Uh, the research that they did at the NRGI identified 52 resource-backed loans in 14 countries, 11 of which are in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, They also looked at three Latin American countries. And these loans totaled about $164 billion between the years of 2004 and 2018. Uh, They claim that these loans are a major public finance risk. And they also say that two Chinese policy banks, the big ones, the China Development Bank and the China Exim Bank, are the lenders in the majority of the resource-backed loans that they uh, focused on. So we're going to get a little bit uh, more insight into the report, and we're thrilled to be able to have one of the report's authors, David Mihai, who's a senior economic analyst at NRGI and also a research fellow at the Central European University in Budapest, and he joins us on the line from Budapest. Uh, David, thank you so much for, for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I think uh, just one very quick note. You were one of the authors, Aisha Adam and Jiang Huang, 
were, were the other two authors of the report. Want to make sure they get credit for that. Also, David, prior to joining NRGI, spent two years in the Sierra Leone Ministry of Finance as an Overseas Development Institute fellow. So has some real African finance experience that we're looking forward to, to benefiting from. We're also joined for the first time from uh, Conakry, uh, Hervé Lado, who is the NRGI's Guinea country manager, and he has an extensive background in field research, particularly in the Niger Delta, and also in corporate social responsibility in Cameroon, and he's been a professor, and we're thrilled to have you on the phone, uh, on the line. Hervé, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Good morning. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to have both of you on. David, let's start with you. Uh, before we get into the details, why don't you give us a brief overview of the findings of your report and what you were trying to achieve with the study? Sure. So the, this report wanted to to look back on on you know this uh, this fifteen years of mostly high commodity prices and and and, and the flourishing uh, of of this of this mode of financing, which which existed before the period we looked at. So Angola famously had had. Uh, had, had obtained such loans in the 90s. And if you go back in history, Peru actually had, had loans of, of this sort uh, in uh, about 100 years ago t- tied to guano. But, you know, we wanted to look at this, this period where, where we, have, we have ample of, ample experience from different countries taking different types of loans and, and, and delve into a little bit of the, of the details as to how do these loans actually look like? What do they have in common? But we also found that you know it's, there there's there's lots of differences. We call many things resource bag loans, and uh, some of them really like really short term uh, kind of prepayment deals, and some other very long, very large loans that may, uh, credit lines that might take 15, 20 years to repay. So wanted to delve into a bit of that. Uh, detail and also try to make a more nuanced argument. We uh, often people come with very strong preconceptions about loans in general, um, and uh, and um, or uh, or or maybe China, who's the biggest lender in this space, they come with again very strong uh, feelings about whether a country should cooperate more closely or less closely. And I and this this paper really wants to focus more on the on 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 the economics and 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 the governance of these these deals. What do we know? Are how transparent are they? How are they being made? What are they being used for? What what are the interest rates? What are uh, and also very importantly, how did how do these loans add up to the public finance risks in 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 the countries where they are most prevalent? Um, so that was that was, and you know, it's a backward-looking analysis. Uh, but uh, and and you know, we come, we conclude with some recommendations in the report about about how. I mean, our our starting point is that these loans are likely here to stay. Some might be renegotiated. Some new loans might be taken. And we we wondered, is there a way? Some if countries decide to go down that route, if there is there ways to to learn stuff, learn from some of the better practices, and, and you know make make these loans uh, more workable for for both parties really. Herve, you uh, the report is, is quite critical about these loans and raises a lot of problems, but they also ra- it also raises um, several kind of key opportunities that these loans offer some you know some countries in in places like sub-Saharan Africa. Can you outline some of the reasons why a country might want this kind of resource back loan? 
I think the the main advantage of that mode of financing is uh, to provide more leeway and more funding, more uh, capacity to the government to fund infrastructures. In a country like uh, Guinea, uh, there are reports showing that most of the cost of mining uh, projects uh, are related to infrastructures. About three quarters and even more in Guinea, like uh, on the Simandu project and others in the country, uh, it is more than 75% infrastructure. In a country lacking in dire need of uh, infrastructures, they may need to um, apply to those uh, finances because uh, they have more uh, capacity, more volume, and uh, they want to develop infrastructure. And we have showed, the report shows that more than 90% of uh, the cases we have uh, examined um, uh, are earmarked, uh, funding are earmarked to uh, building infrastructure, to equip countries. And that is exactly what a country like uh, Guinea uh, expanding its uh, mineral activities in mining projects is lacking now. David, you, your report didn't say the words debt trap specifically, as that's a very loaded, charged word that comes out of the United States and the West talking about a lot of these resource-backed loans, but it did kind of channel some of the concerns that many people, in, in particularly in the White House and in, in the State Department, have been talking about in terms of the risks of borrowing money from China and using resources-backed uh, to, to support those loans. So it, there wasn't an, an overlap, but allow me to to play the devil's advocate here on your loans, on, on your theory here. And, and again, I'm not suggesting that this is my point of view, but I do want to try and channel what the Chinese are saying. So if the Chinese were to read this report, and I don't know if they have or not, but from 2004 to 2018, you talked about the risks, massive amounts of Chinese loans that have coming into Africa. You talked about poor governance and what happens in the event of default but we haven't seen a default. What we've actually seen over the past 15 years is the Chinese actually being flexible. They've wiped out some debt in the Congo. They've wiped out debt in Ethiopia. They've renegotiated debt in parts of Cameroon. So the fears that you are projecting in this report have not borne out in the reality. And so, I, and yet the idea of the resource-backed loans being riskier than the euro bond debt that a lot of these countries have taken on also doesn't seem to be aligned here because... While the Chinese have shown some flexibility in their renegotiation of, of their loans, the eurobond holders in the West do not show any flexibility. Moody's would come down like a ton of bricks on these countries if they defaulted on the euro brick debt. And yet we see far more money leaving African treasuries to pay back eurobond debt than we are seeing paying back resource-backed loans for the Chinese that have some flexibility. How do you respond to that type of critique? Uh, thanks, and these are, these are very valid points uh, you raise uh, in defense of these loans. So, let, uh, so I think it's important to to take into account a few factors. One of the important findings of this report is that these loans are, are concentrated in a few countries. Most countries do not take on these these oil bag loans, and where they where they're being taken on, they're often quite significant. About uh, half of the Republic of Congo's loan is in this was in this form in in 2016 when we looked at it. Uh, 
South Sudan, similarly, very high percentage Angola, very high percentage Chad, very high percentage of the loans are in, this, in the form of oil bag loans. So maybe an oil bag loan, this is the point you raise, in itself is not, uh, it may make sense. They often come with relatively low interest rate. If you compare the rates, the interest rate charged on an oil bag loan from China Exim Bank to Eurobond uh, interest rates, then clearly these are more favorable. But you can't look at the loan in itself, in isolation. You have to look at how much does it add up to. And how. Uh, and what we see is many countries that have taken on these loans have taken on so much debt that they're deeply in the red uh, and, and were some of the countries most severely hit by you know, the oil price crash as well as um, um, other factors that, that made debt riskier um, in, in, in a lot of developing countries. Uh, the other point I want to raise is, uh, is the issue of renegotiation. Again, I agree. Uh, there, there has been uh, some flexibility in, 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 in some renegotiation of these loans. But again, it's important to understand the dynamics at play here. Uh, if I were Moody's, <laughs> or if I were to, def there's a problem with that I would highlight with these loans, is the fact that these loans in many ways are more, they call them more senior. What they mean by that is they're being repaid first. So whereas a Eurobond holder has to wait for the money to reach the treasury, the oil bag loan might be paid directly from the ship, the oil shipment, the oil tanker, um, as soon as soon as the as the oil is extracted, that means that they basically uh, an oil bag loan might be repaid uh, will be repaid even if, even if there's no money in the treasury for for basic uh, public services. So in that respect, other bondholders will be wary that you know they're 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 the ones running the bigger risk here when, when they're lending. And more, and more to the point, I think there's, there's a, there is a concern that if countries decide to collateralize a lot of their oil revenues, then after a while, they'll find it very difficult to raise any other mode of financing once, you know, all of the, once they promise, pledge the way all of their oil revenues. David, just following on on that, um, what happens in the case of an actual default? Um, like, what, what what are the collateral agreed? Um, what is the collateral agreed um, in in some of these deals? And what what are the options open to both sides in case they actually come to an actual default? Uh, sure, and I want to caveat a lot of the things. Uh, so one of the big findings of the report is from the fifty two resource back loan we uh, analyzed. Only in one case, in, in the case of uh, the DRC's uh, mining deal in the DRC, is the contract public, all the key contracts public. That um, includes both the mining agreement and then the financing agreements. In all other cases, we, we, we rely on, on sometimes summary documents, sometimes uh, uh, Chinese uh, sources, sometimes IMF reports and, and, uh, and others. So we don't. And one area where we particularly have very little information is the collateral. Uh, we, we've seen many forms of collaterals. One, it might be money held in an account abroad in, say, in China, uh, where, where there's always however months or uh, worth of, of, of repayment kept in an escrow. Uh, 
sometimes uh, we know that um, there's one infamous case in, in, in Venezuela where, where a CITGO, a, a U.S. refinery, uh, co- refining company, is, is, was a collateral to, to, uh, to the oil bag loans. Um, and, we, and there's speculation that there has been, um, there are collateral to, to other, other loans, but a detail on exactly what, what those are, whether resources underground might be taken, uh, we, don't, we don't clearly know. Um, but that's definitely a risk. And, and that's, that's why we, we push and emphasize that these, these contracts should be public, because if, uh, if it's true that, say, assets or rights to, to the extraction of, of, of these revenues might be lost, uh, then, then that, that brings much more additional ris- risks uh, to these types of loans uh, com- compared to, to sort of regular euro bonds or, or other types. Hervé, the, the question of transparency that David's talking about and the opacity of these loans, that so few people know anything about them, uh, is one of the key themes of the report. And I'm sure it's probably one of the, the issues that you deal with most at the National Natural Resource Governance Institute with the emphasis on the word governance, because that fundamentally is a governance question. Now, when we talk about this issue from the outside, looking into Africa, it seems that all of the burden on transparency is put on the Chinese. So again, the criticisms criticisms of the Chinese are their loans and their dealings with with governments, particularly authoritarian governments, are opaque. No one knows. But there's very little demand, at least from the outside world, on the African stakeholders to do more to be more transparent. You have dealt again in your work in the Niger River Delta and also in the Niger Delta and also in Cameroon and now in Guinea with this question of transparency and uh, and these loans. Talk to us a little bit about where does where does the responsibility lie for the fact that only one of the deals that you guys looked at was remotely transparent and this question of opacity. Yes, um, I think the. the the question of transparency is um, really critical because those contracts, those agreements on so huge contracts, important and strategic contracts or agreements with China are considered as um, a secret, yes, strategic and confidential in many countries. And um, that is the, the challenge now to let uh, either civil society or the government know that those documents contain very critical information to help the citizen um, navigate in, in uh, engagement and commitment that have been taken uh, in their name. So uh, that's part of our work, our daily work in uh, the countries where we operate as NRGI. We work on a daily basis to uh, attract the attention of civil society and the government. Uh, we, have, uh, we have some successes in other uh, situations, in other uh, fields like contract transparency. Uh, that, that, uh, there are more and more countries now publishing contracts, mining contracts. That is something really interesting. I think in the coming months, in the coming years, and uh, thanks uh, to this report as well, 
those agreements on resource-backed loans will be published. Um, there is an agreement now, I think a common understanding that uh, the citizen is uh, expecting more now from the government. And in the case of Guinea, for example, um, uh, there is no opposition there is no reluctance to publish those information. I think, I think sometimes it is a question of uh, priority. What is the priority for a country lacking infrastructure, uh, trying to attract investors in the mining sector? That is the key priorities. And uh, the, the idea being to secure revenues uh, to the country. The question of transparency and accountability uh, is only now becoming part of the game, and it is our work to let them know that it is part of your uh, strategy to attract investors, to let them know that uh, anything you sign or anything you pay or you receive as funding, you are committing to publish. Uh, I think EITI, the Extractive Industry Transparency Initiatives, uh, uh, has made a good, um, uh, ev uh, let's say, um, evolution in its norm, in its, in its standards these last years to um, get those loans, those agreements disclosed. There is in the norm the requirement 4.3 on what they call barter agreements uh, that cover those resource-backed loans. And now, yes, it is mandatory uh, for countries to, uh, um, to make it, uh, to disclose those documents. In the case of Guinea, for example, the report on the validation uh, process, EITI validation process, in February 2019 recommended to the government uh, to um, gain a full understanding of the terms of the relevant agreements and contracts surrounding the resource-backed loan, the $20 billion signed in 2017, and to understand the parties involved, the resources that have been pledged by the state, the value of the balancing benefit stream regarding, for example, infrastructure works, and the materiality of these agreements relative to conventional contracts. So, um, I think um, the government, government of Guinea has now a kind of um, uh, roadmap for the publication of those documents. And again, I think it's not a question of uh, reluctance. Uh, we, will, uh, we try to support them in providing uh, guidance on the content of what to publish. And that is uh, using this report, what we will try to do in coming weeks, coming, coming months. Yeah, let me just add that I think the norms around this are changing very rapidly. We saw, as, as, uh, as Ave said, in the mine, it was unheard of of publishing mining or oil contracts maybe 10, 15 years ago. And now so many countries routinely disclose their, their key contracts. Um, you know, Guinea published uh, its mining contracts and, and, and so did so many other countries. Uh, and similarly, we're seeing a realization in the, in the uh, public, in the debt space, that the, this, these types of secret loans prov uh, represent huge risks. Uh, you know, in the Congo, uh, 
when when the IMF found out how many loans the state-owned company, uh, the national oil company, had taken out, it suddenly had to. It, it was surprised and had to to go back to the drawing table in terms of designing a sustainable program. Uh, you know, debt jumped by by almost fifty percent uh, when uh, as, as as these loans were sort of unveiled. Um, so I think there's a, there's a there's now a clear there's clearly uh, commitments from from all so, uh, all types of actors, uh, including including in China, where uh, China just recently published its own debt sustainability framework, uh, with it signaling the commitment that it's not going to overlend. It's going to monitor how much uh, various entities are lending uh, in in the country's uh, part of the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, so. It's it's changing and it can change very rapidly. Uh, it's it's encouraging that the Democratic Republic of Congo, through EITI's uh, concerted effort, published uh, contracts there, and uh, and we're seeing now also contracts, uh, other types of oil contracts being published in uh, in the in the Republic of Congo, for example. So maybe that will one day reveal um, um, the contracts behind these loans as well. And also just to to put in one other thing that we didn't come up yet, not all the loans are from China. Some are from commodity traders, some are from Russia. Uh, So it's not like this is only China. David, you mentioned before that um, that these loans, this kind of loan model is, is quite old and also already dates back about 100 years. Um, we've seen with the the, um, the Ghanaian um, bauxite for resources deal that was announced last year, um, as Eric mentioned, the you know in, in that case it was it was characterized as a new evolution of the same kind of loan, uh, taking some um, some elements from public private partnerships, you know, by setting up a, a kind of state owned company that would that would um, sell the bauxite on the market, um, you know, and then and then deal with the repayment. Do you do, what kind of evolution do you see in this deal? Do do you actually agree that that this Ghanaian deal is a new a new phase of the same kind of deal uh, it's uh, there's definitely some innovative elements including this this setting up of, of a company although again uh, in in the DRC case actually uh, it, there's also a joint venture being formed uh, with the Chinese and uh, the DRC government so again there's there's elements that we've seen elsewhere um i'm i'm not sure if we i i i would need to understand see where put it differently uh it's definitely a different type of deal all of these deals have have various characteristics but whether it's an evolution or just just a just a new reformulation uh i don't know yet um and I, I think one particular risk in, in this particular Ghanaian case is, yes, uh, some of the risks might might now be sitting with with this this public pi- uh, private partnership, but there are, according to an IMF report at least, uh, there is still a risk the government is taking in initial years if the project is slow to ramp up. So that that risk they could not sort of. Outsource or or uh, or that that risk had to remain with government, and that's that's a major one. And also, again, and uh, we, the contract is not public, but example, 
for example, in the DRC case, the way that uh, public-private partnership works out is, yes, uh, the government of DRC doesn't carry the debt risk for a number of years, but if the loan is not repaid by 2034, I think, then then the government guarantee kicks in. So, yes, it's up. the risk is away for a few years, but in 2034, if only half the loan is repaid, then it falls back on the government. Now, again, that's in the DRC case. Unfortunately, in the Ghana case, I don't know. We don't have the, the public information on whether there is such a year when you know any repayment outstanding would fall back on, on Ghanaian citizens. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa Channel Reporting Project at Wits University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at Wits China Africa or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. So, Hervé, when I was reading the report... I have to be honest that I was getting a little bit frustrated because we've heard a lot of these critiques come from NGOs in the West before. And and it's just warning African governments to say, you know, be careful, don't do this, this is bad, and so forth. And one of the one of your colleagues at NRGI, she said that in some of the news coverage that African governments are engaging in short-termism, that they're thinking in short-term thinking. And I kept thinking to myself, that yes, they are engaging in short-term thinking because they're under enormous pressure right now, given the demographics and given the need to build infrastructure right away. And I think the the COVID crisis really exposes the need to get going as fast as possible, to build up the infrastructure, whether it's public health infrastructure, industrial infrastructure, economic infrastructure, to be able to withstand crises like this that in this era of climate change are only going to become more frequent. And so the, uh, let me make a case now for corruption and a lack of transparency. You don't hear that very often, do you? <laughs> the Chinese will tell you that they intentionally, 10, 15 years ago, wanted to deal on a state-to-state basis because it kept the number of stakeholders down. You know, and I know, that when you have a lot of stakeholders in many African countries, that means things get bogged down. Corruption goes up. And the political process, Guinea is not a good example in this case because there's no opposition. But in a place like Nigeria or South Africa or Kenya, big, vibrant democracies, and at the same time, lots of stakeholders, high levels of corruption, when you start exposing these processes out, you got to pay more people. And it gets bogged down and nothing gets done. And they need to get things done now. So dealing between, you know, the Chinese bank and the family of a government uh, or the leaders or whatever, someone like Edgar Lungu, who is no beacon of democracy, uh, but it's it's him. Okay, he's putting a bunch in his pocket. He's putting a bunch in his friends' pockets and his and, and his and allies' pockets, but things potentially are getting done. Lungu is probably a bad example because nothing's getting done, but, you know, in Nigeria or other places where Buhari, for example, is, you know, having transportation universities put in his birth town, but at the same time, they're getting trains built. So things are getting done, and yet you guys are saying, open it up for transparency, make it more accountable, and the political process in most African countries would lead to just a grinding halt in bureaucracy. Then you've got the Americans, and let's not kind of overlook the Americans because we we have to kind of keep them in mind. 
They will sit there with a microscope over each and every deal and bash the head of the Chinese and Africans over any type of perception of impropriety, true or not. So the Americans will turn around and say, we want more transparency from the Chinese, but you know the Chinese say, well, we have no incentive to open our books up to you because you're never going to be constructive. Mike Pompeo has no incentive whatsoever to be, to be supportive of transparency with the Chinese because he wants to beat the head of the Chinese anytime he can. That's what he's shown over the past year and a half. So with that in mind, why not keep the process closed because it allows things to get done faster? Just a theory. What's your response? <laughs> I will take maybe I think two weeks uh, two I will have two approaches. Uh, I can agree that um, uh, transparency and accountability may extend timelines in uh, undertaking project and in developing projects in um, uh, uh, responding to questions from citizens, from communities, from uh, NGOs, from st all stakeholders. Uh, that is. It, it can be true somehow because you need to organize meetings, to explain, to uh, defend, to argue uh, while doing things. That, is, that can be right. Um, on the other side, I, I can recall on, and report uh, some discussions with uh, uh, some uh, state-owned companies we have supported in last years. Some of them report to us this. Uh, with your support, we have been able, in publishing our report, our annual uh, report, we have been able to disclose basic information. And now it helps us save time in further discussions with investors and with other stakeholders. If they want a basic information on what we do, on what we have done in past years, on the deals we have uh, gone through in, in recent uh, weeks or months. They can go, they can read our, we just say, go on our website, you will have all that. And then when you are done, we can now dig into uh, the, the actual and the substantial issues. That is something uh, I get from my interlocutors every day is here, every day in, in Guinea and in some countries in Africa. And it, it is a, a pledge somehow for when you have an interlocutor who knows how to deal in the same time with uh, actual project, to implement project, to do things, and how to communicate on that and to be accountable on that. It is not a question of bringing communities and everyone on the negotiation table. It's not that the, the question. It's the question of how you organize the transparency, the accountability, what periodicity, on what platforms you can publish, what is uh, to be disclosed. I think it's not, uh, there is not a conflict between transparency, accountability, and emergency in what African countries can do now. There are many examples of uh, some actors, uh, state-owned enterprises and government who are succeeding in that. Uh, look at the transparency, the contract transparency. That is something unbelievable 15 years ago in Africa. Now it is a kind of um, uh, a, a new norm and, and you know, as from 2021, it will be mandatory in many EITI uh, countries' member now. And uh, 
uh, it is a good practice that yields some good results, even uh, including in the uh, negotiation process, and it is beneficial for everyone. David, as, as Eric mentioned, you know, right now is a particular crisis point for these kind of loans, um, with countries like Nigeria really, you know, facing uh, potential big problems because of this global, the global fall um, in the price of oil. Um, do you think that the current crisis is going to lessen countries' appetite for this kind of loan in the future? Um, I mean, it's very hard uh, just, uh, to to do any kind of uh, forecast. I mean, the, the situation is changing so rapidly from one day to the other. Even if you just look at the what the wobble, how the oil price volatility has been, I think one thing it clearly highlights is, is exactly the fact that in such an uncertain and volatile environment, it's going to be very hard to uh, to conduct to conclude new deals of this type, really. Uh, because you know whatever was agreed yesterday might not hold tomorrow um so i i would that's that's maybe but maybe once you know some of uh some of the uncertainties settle then and if i you know if if you believe what's coming out of opec plus that oil plus, uh that oil demand is likely to fall as a re- uh, as a result of the outbreak, but production might even increase as a result of Russia and and, and the Saudis uh, committing to to producing more. Then clearly you're you're in for much much lower oil prices, which means that some of these loans will will be very hard to service. Uh, from and there's two aspects to that actually. One is that most of these oil bag loans were were signed by countries that are hugely dependent oil, on oil revenues. So when the oil price is down, everything becomes uh, very, you know, they, they just run out of cash very quickly. At, at these kind of prices, their budgets don't break even. So that's, that's one difficulty, a general one. And then there's a more practical one is the type of loans they sign. So some of these loans will be structured in a way where you have to pay more when the oil price is low. So you have to send more barrels of oil. But luckily, some of these loans actually have uh, have provisions in. They're called counter-cyclical loans, basically, which means that when the oil price is very low, then the servicing of the loan kind of slows down somewhat. It doesn't go to a standstill, so it's still difficult for the government, but it's less difficult than, say, servicing a euro bond, where you have to pay whatever, $500 million, uh, whatever happens. Here, you might just commit to the same amount of barrels in oil, so that, that's, that's somewhat easier on the government. But because these are such resource-dependent countries, even that, that might might. Uh, end up being difficult. And I think, and I, I don't want to extrapolate too big into very short-term trends, but the other the other uh, big question I see looming is, is the energy transition risk. So uh, the energy transition me- risk might mean that's, and especially if you couple that with, with very low oil prices, that that means that many, many new producers of countries that recently had discovered uh, big resources, whether it's the gas in East Africa or or even the oil like Uganda or Kenya uh, or or in in um, um, uh, or even in in other places, 
they might these things might not be developed, might not be commercial to develop. On the other hand, the energy transition also brings need demand for minerals. So maybe there might be renewed interest, and we see that a little bit with with the recent Ghana. Although those are box ideals, but so not necessarily the most important ones from an energy transition perspective. But maybe you know the the growing appetite for minerals uh, might might mean that that some of these deals will be more prevalent in in the mining sector if oil prices are to stay this low and this volatile. The report is resource-backed loans, pitfalls, and potential. It is written by the Natural Resource Governance Institute and published a couple of weeks ago. Really, it's a primer on the resource-backed loan I- issue that I can't recommend enough to read and get caught up on this. It's really, as you've seen from today's discussion, just there's a lot in there. Uh, David Mihai is one of the authors. He's a senior economic analyst analyst at NRGI based in Budapest. Uh, David, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Thanks for talking to you guys. And Hervé Lado is NRGI's Guinea country manager, uh, who also joined us on the line from Conakry. Thank you so much, Hervé, for taking the time to join us. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Kobus, this indeed was the the most comprehensive report on resource-backed loans that we've seen for a long time. I, I do recommend everybody to read it. It is very, very interesting. It's not that long, and it's not that academic, so it's it's quite accessible. But I still come back to some of the points that I made in our discussion over the fact that I just don't know what a lot of these governments are supposed to do. Because on the one hand, the politics being what they are make it really difficult for opening this up for for, 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 you know, for, you know, oversight and whatnot. And I know that's the right thing that we should be going at, but at the same time, getting stuff done is also of paramount importance. Please, I don't want people to think that I'm advocating for corruption or opacity or the way that the Chinese do business. I think I'm just suggesting that the realities of doing these big projects in Africa today, given the politics and dealing with the Chinese who are by far the least transparent people you'll find on the on, on the planet when it comes to their governance um, makes it so that it's just there's not a lot of new suggestions here on what you're actually supposed to do. So on the government to government level, on the private sector side, they were right. There are more contracts being put out, um, but I'm still not as hopeful about the future. I think as they were in their in their assessment. I mean, for me, it also fits into the the broader question, um, and and we've discussed this before, um, where you know where, when you look at um, at discourses about what Africa, how Africa should develop, going back to before the 1950s, there was already a lot of talk about how Africa should diversify its economy away from raw minerals. Now it's 70, 80 years later, and we're still talking about Africa, about how Africa should you know, kind of diversify away from raw minerals. Um, And increasingly, you know, so much of of African development still is dependent on Africans selling raw minerals and, you know, unprocessed oil and so on, 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 on the global market. So, so that I feel is very frustrating, you know, kind of, it's, it, it, it seems like it's structurally almost impossible to, to imagine a kind of a different kind of economy for Africa than this kind of raw mineral economy. Well, we're about to see what happens when the value of these minerals and those those commodity-backed loans goes down, 
because that's the crisis that we're in today, both because of the OPEC plus crisis, as well as what's going on with COVID-19. This is a story that we will continue to cover. Uh, and we're so grateful to have had the the folks from the National Resources Governance Institute to join us on this. And we're going to continue bringing you different voices on this subject. We'd like to get more government stakeholders from within African administrations to join us and give their point of view. So anyway, that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another show. Until then, thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Gwobas at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com. Mm-hmm.